People in at least 80 cities across Iran marched, reportedly barricaded streets and defied brutal repression last weekend as the huge protest movement in that country entered its third week. Iranian police, and some apparently in plain clothes and firing live ammunition, attacked about 200 protesters at a university in the capital, Tehran, on Sunday. News and social media reports say that cops laid siege to the campus and shot at students trapped in an underground car park. And that brutality came as the growing protest movement seems to be putting pressure on the right-wing government of Ebrahim Raisi and the state. Welcome to the Sound of Solidarity, brought to you by Solidarity. We're a revolutionary socialist group in Australia, and if you'd like to find out more about us, our website is solidarity.net.au. I'm David Glanz, and I'm recording this episode on the struggle in Iran on unceded Wurundjeri land in Narm, or Melbourne. The movement in Iran began after the police killing of a young woman, Mazar Amini, who died in custody after being arrested for wearing her headscarf, apparently, quote-unquote, improperly. One of the fantastic responses across the country has been hundreds, if not many thousands, of women taking off their hijabs in public as a sign of defiance against the regime, and schoolgirls as well. As socialists, our position is very clear. It is the choice of the woman whether or not to wear the hijab, and we respect that choice, and that's the choice that many people are out on the streets fighting to defend. But behind that particular issue is a broader economic and political crisis. Unemployment has grown, the cost of living is spiralling. Official inflation is at 48% and 55% of the population now live below the poverty line. The public welfare system has almost disappeared and free school education, which existed for the last 60 years, is now hard to find. And the universal healthcare system no longer works unless you pay for health insurance. And yet in 2020, the number of millionaires rose by over 20%. Privatisation has seen government officials and their friends buy up many state assets and companies. And there's rampant corruption. Sharif Amuzgar, who is a socialist in Tehran, told our sister paper, Socialist Worker in Britain, that the movement reflected growing anger at the state's authoritarian laws, but also frustration at years of economic crisis. He said, Mazar Amini's death under morality police custody was a spark in a powder keg. The majority of protesters, and I'm quoting him here, are the middle-class youth that face a bleak and precarious future, challenged by unemployment, falling purchasing power and rising inflation. Many of these issues made much worse by Western sanctions. He goes on to say that this dire economic situation is because Iran has embraced neoliberal policies since the early 1990s and basically life is hell for the younger generation. So he says the protests spread because Iranian society has been on the brink of bursting for at least the past five years. One decade of long economic recession, and I'm still quoting the comrade, and arrogance from the political elite toward a desperate middle class and an increasingly militant working class has made the outburst of people's fury and street protests just a matter of time. 
And so far the repression has been brutal. The police have killed at least 52 protesters and the government shuts down the internet basically from noon to midnight every day. But there's a growing potential for working class action. Iran has a, a significant uh, working class movement with a very proud history. And there have been many groups of workers be, who have been on strike over the past year despite the repression. And that includes teachers and nurses. Thousands of casual and short-term contract workers in the massive oil and petrochemical complex in Isulaya on the Persian Gulf Coast organised several weeks of strikes in June last year. And just a few days ago, the Oil Workers' Council that organised last year's strikes threatened a general strike in the oil industry across Iran unless the government ends its crackdown on protests. Teachers also unofficially called for a boycott on attending classes and last week, students stayed away from primary schools and high schools. And there are also reports of substantial numbers of strikes in the west of Iran, in the Kurdish area. For our rulers in the west, they have something of a problem. They have spent the last 40 years or more calling out Iran as a terrorist state and imposing uh, heavy sanctions to damage its economy. At the same time, they want to at least in words, profess support for the protests. But of course, they understand that mass protests from below, combined with strike action, have the potential to set off a much broader struggle across the region, with echoes of the Arab Spring of 2011. And that's the last thing they want. For the rest of this podcast, I want to look at why the West has been so hostile to Iran. And to understand that, we really have to start with the revolution of 1979. Now, for US imperialism and its allies, Iran is a very important country. Its geographical position is, is vital. It sits in the middle of the nexus of the Middle East, of the former Soviet Union to the north, of Afghanistan and India to, to the southeast. And it has been critical in a series of alliances. When it was a US ally up until 1979, it was a supporter of Israel. And now it plays a role in support of the regimes in Iraq, in Syria and in Lebanon. And of course, Iran has massive amounts of oil. The former British Prime Minister Winston Churchill referred to Iran as a prize from fairyland beyond our wildest dreams. Massive profits. And from 1953 to 1979, the West essentially had a loyal ally in Iran, under the rule of the Shah, the so-called Emperor of Iran. He was installed after a CIA-supported coup against the nationalist government of Mossadegh in 1953, who had moved against the Anglo-Iranian oil company, which was a phenomenal source of profits for the West. And once the Shah took control, he used his secret police, Savak, to savagely repress the left. It's reckoned he jailed and tortured some 20,000 political prisoners. I was a student activist in this period in the 1970s in Britain, and Iranian comrades on my campus would only go on demonstrations wearing hoods over their heads. They were that worried about being identified by Savak even in Britain, and their families punished back in Iran. And in this context, with the left being heavily repressed, political Islam began to emerge as a significant opposition. 
And meanwhile, oil money and US military aid meant the country was beginning to industrialize. About two and a half million people employed in manufacturing and 70,000 workers in the oil industry, a smaller number of workers, but of strategic value. But there was rising resistance from 1975 onwards, when there was a drop in oil revenues, which led to an economic crisis. In 1977, students, intellectuals and clerics, imams, protested, supported by some capitalists and slum dwellers. There were cuts in wages, which sparked strikes, which peaked that year in July, when General Motors workers set their own factory on fire in protest. Between October 1977 and September 1978, anti-Shah protests grew from weekly to daily events. On September 7, 1978, two million people demonstrated in Tehran. And in the last months of 1978, there was a massive strike movement, particularly in the oil industry, and that broke the regime. It could tolerate at some level mass protests on the streets, but when the oil workers turned off the oil taps, then the government was finished. And that happened when the Shah imposed martial law, his troops killed more than 2,000 people. And at that point, the oil workers struck. And workers everywhere were taking over their workplaces. They took over their factories, their offices, their hospitals, and their universities. And they set up what is known in Farsi, the Iranian language, as shoras. And shoras are workers' councils. They were known as Soviets in Russia in 1905 and 1917. They were known as Cordones in Chile in 1973. They were known as workers' councils in Hungary in 1956 and many other places. And slum dwellers too began to organise. They set up neighbourhood committees around the local mosques. And what we saw was, as Lenin put it, a festival of the oppressed. The Shah fell in February 1979. The monarchy was was finished. Everybody had something to say. Everybody wanted to take part in the discussion about the new country and the new regime. And there was a flood of publications. They were on sale. They were discussed at the roadside. There were public meetings in the streets, the universities and the workplaces. People debated politics, religion, philosophy and art and socialist parties grew fast and new ones were founded. Oppressed groups, particularly women and national minorities, took centre stage and demanded equal rights, and peasants seized the land. Independent trade unions were founded alongside the Shoras, and in 1979 there were 350 strikes. Let's pause a moment and look at the Shoras in more detail. Because, as I've indicated, when workers struggle anywhere reaches a certain point workers begin to organize in their workplaces across industries and then increasingly across neighborhoods and cities and they begin to take power into their own hands and so it's worth looking at the shoras because they are a taste of what not just has been but what is possible in the future and not just in iran but everywhere else the shoras one report said had elective executive committees which represented all the employees of a factory. So that's blue collar and white collar and of every industrial group, irrespective of trade, skill or gender. And their driving concern was workers' control. In April 1979, Time magazine reported from one of the oil cities and they wrote, 
I quote, In dusty, steamy Abadan, an air of normality appears to have returned, but life is anything but normal inside the world's largest refinery. Members of the Workers' Council argue interminably. Convinced that they were the dominant force in ousting the Shah, the oil workers feel that they are being neglected by the revolutionary government. They're insisting on 50% to 100% wage increases and are threatening to walk out if they don't get them. Members of the Workers' Council have been demanding sweeping changes in management. And we're told that after the insurrection, the strike committees in that refinery in Abadan invited all the workers to general assemblies to elect the representatives of the Shorers. And they were looking at issues around higher wages, better and cheaper housing, retirement benefits, participation in management, and the purge of the old, the old managers. Those were the kind of demands that were made by the Abadan oil workers. So if the Shorers were so powerful, so widespread, and in control of the individual workplaces, if they played such a critical role, particularly in the oil industry, in bringing down the Shah, who was backed by America, the CIA, and a massive secret police, why did they fail to shape the revolution that started to take place in 1979? Why was power ceded to the Islamists? And there are a number of problems that the Shoras faced. One was lack of coordination. They tended to be quite local, and to the extent that there was the beginning of national organisation, it was only really getting underway as the Islamists seized power. There were also political weaknesses. Many workers felt that Ayatollah Khomeini, who was the uh, Islamist leader of the Islamist forces, who'd come back from exile in, in Paris, was on their side because he talked in nationalist terms. And some of the Shoras said, quote, the day after the revolution, under the leadership of Imam Khomeini, we will officially take over the control of the factories. But they were sadly mistaken. Only three days after the insurrection in February, Khomeini ordered all striking workers to return to work. And within a month, the government was threatening that any disobedience from and sabotage of the implementation of the plans of the provisional government will be regarded as opposition against the genuine Islamic revolution. The provocateurs and agents will be introduced to the people as counter-revolutionary elements, so that the nation will decide about them. A very clear threat against the worker militants. Now, in reality, the Islamists didn't get their own way very quickly, and there was a battle backwards and forwards for control between the Shoras and the new Islamic regime, until Iran went to war with Iraq in September 1980. And at that point, the uh, weight of nationalism meant the Islamists were successful. And unfortunately, by early 1982, the Islamist regime felt it possible to outlaw the Shoras altogether. Now, another factor was the, the left, because Iran had a very substantial left before 1979. But unfortunately, many of them turned to guerrilla struggle in the hills and in the mountains. They dismissed the option of organising amongst workers. And some of them came from a secular background, the Fedayeen, and some came from an Islamic background, the Mohajadeen. They all claimed to be Marxists, but they didn't look at the central power of the working class. 
The other major force on the left was the Two-Day Party, which was effectively the Communist Party, and that by this stage it was very conservative, very nationalist, and did not believe that the workers could lead a battle for power. They accepted the Stalinist formulation that there had to be two stages of the revolution. The first, a broad revolution against the dictatorship, a nationalist unity against, against the Shah, and only later, when capitalism was more developed, could workers struggle for power. And there was also a, a fourth organisation, a much smaller organisation, which looked to the ideas of the tradition of Maoism in China. But whether it was the secular guerrillas like the Fedayeen, whether it was the Mujahideen guerrillas who tended to look to the ideas of Che Guevara or the smaller group that looked to the ideas of Mao or the two-day party that was loyal to the conservatism of uh, the Moscow communist leadership, all of them agreed there had to be a broad unity, a nationalist unity, and they didn't see building the Shoras and fighting for socialist leadership inside the Shoras as being essential. And to the extent to which they could make progress, this was blown away by Khomeini undertaking not just radical rhetoric, but his supporters invading the US embassy in Tehran in November 1979, and holding the embassy and its officials hostage for 444 days. To many on the left who had a nationalist starting point rather than a class struggle starting point, this confirmed that Khomeini was an anti-imperialist and therefore they subordinated, politically subordinated their forces to him. But he was going to turn to them. The Mujahideen fled to Iraq and to their shame they joined Saddam Hussein's onslaught against Iran in the war. The two-day party and the Fedayeen gave Khomeini unconditional support and of course Khomeini responded by smashing them. In early 1980 he turned against the left in the universities and in 1983 both the two-day party and the Fedayeen were banned outright. 12,000 left-wing activists were executed or killed in the armed struggles between 1981 and 1985 and thousands of others were executed in the summer of 1998. So it's a tragedy of the left because the left was not, was not weak. The left was strong, the left had substantial support, but the left had a fundamental political weakness. It located the struggle as being outside of the working class and located it primarily within the framework of nationalist unity against, of course, American imperialism and, and against the Shah. And that opened up a space that the Islamists were able to take advantage of. Now, the struggle has continued throughout and we're seeing the fruits of that continuing struggle today on the streets of so many cities in Iran. In July 1999, 500 students staged a protest and there was a violent crackdown by supporters of the regime. And as a response, students organised protest over the coming days in 22 cities. In 1998, the year before, there had been 90 labour protests reported in large industries, including strikes in the Isfahan steel plant, the Beshar textiles factory, the Hamadan glass manufacturing plant, and several strikes and demonstrations by workers in the oil industry at the Abadan refinery that we've already referred to. 
One survey said that between April 99 and April 2000, there were 266 strikes. The dictatorship of Khomeini has always been challenged. In 2009, more than a million people marched on the 18th of June in Tehran. And in 2021, as I've already referenced, oil workers went on strike across 70 companies. So the struggle today has not come out of a clear blue sky. It has come out of a continuing willingness of workers, of students, of women activists and of national minorities to fight back against the regime of Khomeini. And it should be stressed that in that struggle, the West is no ally whatsoever. The West was a supporter of the Shah. The West supported Iraq initially in its war against Iran. The West has no, no interests in supporting the rise of an independent workers' movement, student movement, of national liberation struggles and women's movements inside Iran. They have basically made life hell for ordinary people through sanctions. And we in the West, in the working class movement, in the socialist movement, have to reject sanctions on Iran because they are basically punishment of, of ordinary people. We have to reject any hint of military intervention, as some of the more warlike members of the ruling class in the West have suggested. And we need to stand in absolute solidarity with the struggles that are taking place today. We have to stand in solidarity with the struggles that are taking place on the streets of Australian cities, organised by Iranian people here in Australia as around the world. And we also need to campaign for the right of Iranian refugees and asylum seekers in Australia or trapped offshore in Australia's hellholes in Nauru and Papua New Guinea to have the right to permanent residency here. What hypocrisy when the Australian government speaks out in support of these protests in Iran when they will not allow Iranians who have fled from that regime safe haven and permanent visas here in Australia. Our enemy is Western imperialism and that means Australian sub-imperialism. It means our own ruling class here. We need to mobilise against our own state, our own government, because that is part of a struggle against the dictatorship in Iran and against the power of imperialism across the developing world and the global south. But in taking up that struggle in solidarity with the struggle in Iran, we also need to learn the lessons. The lesson that workers are capable of creating parallel structures of power that can challenge the legitimacy of capitalist control and of the capitalist state. That can happen in any country where the working class exists and we need to keep that vision, vision in mind. But alongside that, we need to build a revolutionary party here in Australia, everywhere that people are active around the world, that understands the central power of the working class to turn capitalism upside down, to smash the state that represses our protests, whether it's done in a so-called peaceful way or whether it's done with guns and, and, and brutal violence. We need to build a party that is part of the working class movement because when we challenge for power, as the Iranian working class has challenged for power, we need to be in a position to convince our fellow workers that we need to take on the state and smash it and build workers' power. Because if we do not, the answer will be the Shah in 1953 
and uh, the Islamist dictatorship from 1979 onwards. Solidarity with the struggle in Iran, build workers' resistance everywhere, build a bigger and more influential revolutionary socialist current in Australia and around the world. Mm -hmm.